What's up, everybody? This is Fred Ricciani of TSC News. We have right here on the line a very special guest. He's a former WWE manager, producer, been Vince McMahon's right-hand man for over 20 years. And nowadays, he finds himself as the host of the number one podcast out there today, Something to Wrestle With's Bruce Pritchard, who's getting ready this weekend to rock Brooklyn and Philly the following weekend. Bruce, how's it going? Man, it's going great. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. For sure. Now, before we dive into everything going on in the world of wrestling and the success of your podcast, you have not one but two big shows right here in the Northeast. You want to tell us a little bit about Brooklyn? Well, the huge one is this Friday where we are partnering with Barclays Center and the Brooklyn Nets. The Brooklyn Nets are going to take on the Miami Heat. And right after that, big double header, we will be doing something to wrestle with live with Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson right there at Barclays Center. Um, tickets start at only $35, and so you can get them over at boxofgimmicks.com. But it's a big partnership. We're happy to be working with Barclays Center and the Brooklyn Nets, and we think this is going to be the start of something huge. For sure. And it was confirmed just recently on your official Facebook and Twitter that you – are going to be returning to Monday Night Raw on the 25th anniversary show <laughs> as your iconic character, Brother Love. Did you think you were going to get the call? And do you, can you drop any hints on what we can expect from your long way to return? Yeah, I really didn't think I would get the call, but you never say never in this business. And the fact that I did, I'm really happy about and, and kind of proud of, but I'm... Just happy to be there and to be a part of the festivities. 25 years doing Monday Night Raw. Raw was one of my babies. And I'm just happy to be coming back and be able to see everybody and, and see everything. And a crazy thing happened this past weekend. WWE put up a poll asking who everyone was most excited about returning. And I didn't even know that the poll was up. And someone sent it to me, so we retweeted it. And our audience, man greatest audience in the world got on there and when i woke up monday morning it was 45 percent that were most excited to see brother love uh return to the wwe so that kind of puts a smile on your face and makes you proud and, and just give out all that much more love to our audience because they're the best that, th this is a, a hell of a result here because i'm looking at my phone right now i checked right before we, we hopped on the air 45 percent for brother love which is nut that's just that's that's incredible you're beating out stone cold steve austin well i think it's the power of of our podcast audience and our listeners that are extremely passionate about the show and whenever we ask them you know hey support us they support us in droves and so you know we're looking for a lot of that this friday in brooklyn we want to see all of the something to wrestle with bruce pritchard listeners at barclays center so uh, we think it's going to be a great event, and, and this is pretty damn cool. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that you actually had a podcast before this one, and for whatever reason, it didn't you know take off or anything, and then later you hooked up with Conrad Thompson, your co-host, for something to wrestle with. Uh, what led you to get back into podcasting, and have you been surprised by all the success you've had these last couple of years? Well, initially, when I did the podcast in 2009, I guess it was, podcast was really in its infancy. And a gentleman by the name of Brad Saul, who ran Web Talk Radio, had really the first podcast. And it was, you know, we called it Internet Radio at the time. But I did a show, uh, John Layfield talked me into doing that show, but it was a one-man show. It was me talking 
for an hour about things that were going on in the wrestling business at the time. So I think anybody wanting to listen to me and, and we did great numbers. I mean, I, I was doing 20,000 a week then when everything was in its infancy. But when I went to work for TNA later on in, in 2010, it was a little bit of a conflict of interest and I stopped doing the show. I did not want to do a podcast. I had no desire to do a podcast. And Conrad Thompson, my partner, pitched the concept to me after I told him a story about the radicals. And he said, man, that's a podcast. I said, no, that's something that's never going to happen. I'm not going to do it. And after several days or weeks, whatever it was, of kind of prodding me, I said, okay, we'll do it. We'll do it to sell mortgages, okay? And I'll be damned if it didn't just take off. So did you guys hook up through Conrad's mortgage business prior to doing the podcast? Yeah, we were friends and I was working with him in the mortgage industry. And that's where, you know, SaveWithBruce.com comes from. And we were doing mortgages and I thought I was out of the wrestling business. And lo and behold, just when you think you're out, they pull you back <laughs> in. Were, were there any misconceptions about podcasting you had? I know you originally did one when it was quote unquote internet radio, but obviously the game has changed uh, over the last decade. Was there anything that, that you didn't expect, like, damn, this is harder than it looks or, or something that you may not have thought of going into it? Not really. Uh, I think that the maybe the level of, of going out and getting the right system here for my home office and putting up acoustical foam all over the place, uh, little things like that just to make our – our podcast a little bit better quality than what may already be out there and to stand out apart from the crowd. But you know, the, the idea and the concept, we examine one topic, our audience picks the topic for the most part, and then we tear it to shreds and we do a deep dive into that topic. My podcast is all about my recollections and, and what what I went through and, and how things affected me. So it's, it's a lot of it. It's, it's my story. And, um, that part of it is pretty easy. You've been a part of a lot of moments in Debbie history. And I, and I know that the perception of you and anybody that's been close to Vince McMahon at times is, Oh, this guy's gotta be a yes man or this and that and, and what have you. But when listening to your podcast, not only is your recollection pretty damn good, uh, but you realize over time, Holy crap, Bruce Pritchard's, not only been a witness to some of the greatest moments in WWE <laughs> history, but a participant of them. Prior to doing this podcast, did you kind of realize your positive role in the wrestling business? Or has this podcast over time kind of reminded you, hey, man, I did some pretty cool stuff over the years? Well, it's always nice to, to reminisce. And I think that when you're, you're a part of something like what we were a part of, you – Jim Ross and I were talking about this the other day and we were laughing that if something was good, Vince got a lot of the credit. If something was bad, then we were dumbasses. So you become used to that. And if you truly love what you're doing and you love the business, you forge ahead and it really doesn't matter who gets the credit for it. The talent at the end of the day is the one that has to go out on screen, perform it. If they're great performers and they're good storytellers, then You've got a good product, and we just had to create the stories and get the best and get the most out of the performers that we had in front of us. We had a great roster, and over the years, a lot of uh, great people to work with. So, yeah, you think back and go, hmm, Monday Night Raw, that was something that I came up with out of cost-cutting. 
What if we did a live show? And that's how it began. What if we did a live show in the Northeast every week? If we routed everything through the Northeast, that would cut our costs from having to fly talent in every Monday for a live primetime, which is what Vince wanted to do. And it grew from that germ of an idea to what it is today. Yeah. You had the pleasure of not only learning under Vince McMahon's tree, but also Houston Wrestling's Paul Bosch. Uh, what are the most important lessons that both these iconic figures in wrestling taught you? You know, I think that as far as Vince, one of the most life lessons really that Vince ever taught me was you, you judge people on how they treat you and not on perception and rumor and innuendo. So someone may come in and have the worst reputation in the world. They may have had that reputation and that may have been because of circumstances that existed somewhere else. So you work on a clean slate, you give everyone the benefit of the doubt that may turn out to be really horrible human beings, but at least you give them the benefit of the doubt. I have found that most of the time, if you're fair with people and you're up front with them, then for the most part, they'll be fair and up front with you. You're always going to have your jerks, but at the same time, I think that as long as everybody knows where they're coming from, it's a better environment. And the, the best lesson that I ever learned from Pat Patterson, who I worked with for so many years and I think this applies to everybody is when you're working in a creative atmosphere, two simple words, the best two words that I include in, in my vocabulary are what if, because I had a habit of if someone presented an idea and I didn't like it to just say, wow, that's stunk. That's horrible. What a terrible idea. And proceed to tell you every reason why that idea was a bad idea. And it would come across very harsh because it was. I, I didn't have a really good presentation at that time. And Pat would say to me, he goes, why, why don't you look at it and say, what if, and present another idea to make them think about it? Because it takes people off guard when they present an idea that may not be the greatest in the world. You don't like it. Okay, that's cool. You don't like it. But instead of saying that stinks, say... Okay, that's good. But what if we tried it this way? It makes them think and it makes them stop what they're doing for a minute and try on a new idea. Would you say that's and, the, the greatest lesson you learned in between Deddy B stints? Because you talked about it before in your podcast where the first time you, you were employed there, you, you were very young, you were kind of you know, abrasive, and then you were you know, a, a bit more uh, nuanced than, I, I don't know if compatible is the right word, but yeah, you, you, you know, you'd be saying, you know, what if uh, in the second run? Yeah, I was a little more subdued the second time around. The, the first time, my gosh, I was 24 years old, running the television studio, also a talent, and I had I had the world by the cojones, and I thought this will never end. My God, they can't fire me. I'm perfect. So you you get humbled a little bit, you get cut down, and you realize, okay, maybe there is a different way to approach this. And once you learn that it makes life a whole lot easier, not only for you, but everybody around you. Now, as a performer, you got to have confidence and conviction in everything you do on screen. But I would imagine that's also the same case behind the scenes of being a producer, being Vince McMahon, a road agent, uh, whatever. When did you get to the point in your career with WWE where you said, you know what? I'm pretty damn good. Some people may agree with me, may disagree with me, but <laughs> at this time, I know exactly what I'm doing. 
I don't know that we all ever really know what the hell we're doing. And I think we're, we're going out and in, in, again, in a creative business, when you go out and you're pitching ideas and you're trying new things, you hope it's right. You hope that what you're doing is the right answer, but there's so many, there's a lot of right answers. There's a lot of wrong answers, but as long as you're trying something and you're not staying complacent and just doing the same thing over and over again without results, then I, I think that, that you grow. I don't know that I've ever been confident to say, okay, man, I've got it. Um, I was pretty good. I think I am pretty good <laughs> at what I did. But I think that at the same time, we can always grow and we can always learn more and become better at what we do. For sure, for sure. Now, when you originally got into the business, did you have aspirations of long-term being a pro wrestler, being being a future world champion? Or did, in the back of your mind, did you say, you know what, I just hope I can make a living in this business doing whatever? No, I always wanted to be the world champion. I always wanted to wrestle and, and be in the ring, be the main event, be the champ, and have everything centered around me. So as a kid, that's what I was working towards. The reality of blowing my knee out when I was 18 years old and Paul Bosch, the promoter in Houston, saying these words that rang in my head from forever on after that was, you know, you have longevity in the office and the money is behind the scenes, not in the ring. So I got in the office and I started to see that when you're in creative and you're a part of that whole process, you get to be everybody. I'm not just playing one, one role or being myself. I get to be all of the characters when you're writing television and you're creating and you're booking and doing these type of things. So I landed in the office. I loved it and I never got out. Uh, I got to perform as brother love. I got to do things in the business as a performer, I never thought I'd ever get the opportunity to do. Loved it. Um, so I had the best of all worlds. And your brother did too, Dr. Tom Pritchard, who we've had on mm -hmm. before, you know, who's a, a wealth of wrestling knowledge himself. And he's another one who, you know, started out you know, as a wrestler, did his thing, ended up being a, also a, a well-respected trainer. Did he kind of have the same mindset going in? Like, hey, I'm going to be a pro wrestler, I'm going to be the world champion. And then eventually he, he found himself training guys and being better at that? Well, I think Tom, all Tom ever wanted to do was be a wrestler and Tom never really saw himself in the office or anything else. If Tom could be wrestling right now and main eventing in a territory somewhere, I think he'd be extremely happy. However, you know, father time takes its toll and they're in order to make money and remain in the business long term. You have to adapt and you have to change your ways. And Tom has a gift and his gift is training and his gift is being able to share his knowledge and get it across to young talent and get the best out of that talent. So he was given that opportunity. And I think that that's where he really excelled uh, as great as Tom was in the ring. And he was, he main evented in every territory that he ever worked. Uh, I still think his legacy will be what he did uh, training people like Kurt Angle and The Rock. And it just goes on and on down the list of the different people that he's touched and that he's been able to uh, bring into this business. Nowadays, of course, we have WB NXT, which is not only a developmental territory, 
but it's kind of become like, like a third brand. And I remember back when you were in WWE and Dr. Tom was in WWE, uh, one of the things I really liked about developmental, whether it be HWA or OVW, is that occasionally you guys would send main roster guys to developmental to work with the younger guys, help them kind of brush up. Uh, a couple people like D.O. Brown and, and Val Venus uh, come to mind. More recently in NXT, Tyson Kidd a, a few years back. Do you think it would behoove WWE to do that more often than not? Yes, I do. And I, I think that they're doing that. They may not do it as prevalent as we did it then. But what I truly loved about the way that we did developmental back in the day, if you will, when Jim Ross and I were doing it, was we had developmental systems set up all over the country. We had uh, Memphis, Louisville, Tampa, Atlanta, Cincinnati, California, out in L.A., and then we had uh, one up in Massachusetts. So we had different places to send the talent across the country where they were exposed to different audiences that had been used to different styles of wrestling through the years in the territory days. And what worked in California may not work in Atlanta, Georgia. What works in Atlanta, Georgia may not work when they get to Massachusetts. And then they go down to Memphis and, whoa, here's a whole nother brand new world. So it was a, a learning experience for the talent to find what works everywhere. And then that's the time to bring them into the show and bring them into the WWF at the time. So um, we did it a little bit differently, but right now they're, they've got a great facility down at the Performance Center in Orlando, and they do have you know top guys that go down there and share their experience and watch the young talent and try to get them up to speed. And at the time, especially in the, in the late 90s and, and early mid-2000s, I feel like that was kind of like a sink or swim era where there was a lot of really talented guys, but not everybody always kind of got their, their chance to shine because there was just so much talent out there. You know, Triple H, Shawn Michaels, later John Cena. Of course, you had Stone Cold and Rock and, and all those guys. It was like a different transitional period. Was there anybody that stood out to you in one of the developmental territories that you're surprised never became a bigger star? Wow. Um... You know, I always felt Val Venus, as Val Venus, that Sean Morley could have been a much bigger star had he not come in as the former porn star. I thought he had it, thought he had the charisma, the the attitude, every, everything about it, and I thought that he could have been a much bigger player than he was. And that's not to say that Val wasn't a great talent and didn't do very well with the Val character. But I think that without that character, I think he could have gone even further. R Random WWE trivia. Back in 2003, you guys did kind of switch him up, though. You made him Chief Sean Morley. He was the chief of right. staff for Eric Bischoff. And I thought he did really well in that role, kind of ditching the Val Venus character. And right away, he ended up coming back as the big Val Boski. Uh, look at, looking back, do you guys kind of wish that you kept him? And that character, and do you think that he could have succeeded, or do you feel like by that point he was a little too far gone? You know, by that point, and you got to remember, first impressions last a lifetime. <laughs> so the first impression that the audience had of him was Val Venus, the former porn star. And that sticks no matter how much you try and change someone and you try to do something different with them. 
that first impression is going to still be in the back of their minds. It's got to be something really powerful. You look at uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. When he came in, he was the ringmaster. His departure was a subtle one, and Steve wasn't comfortable with the ringmaster. He didn't like the ringmaster. And Steve gradually you know, changed right before the audience's eyes into Stone Cold. And that was something that Steve came up with, that Steve made. He believed it. That's who he is. So that's why the character was so damn successful. Because when you think of Stone Cold Steve Austin, there's not a lot, there's not a lot of gimmick to that. That's, that's the guy. You see him out on the street, anywhere else. What you see is what you get. And on the topic of guys reinventing themselves and getting different characters and, and whatnot, one guy who you obviously know very well, who's also going to be appearing at Raw 25, John Bradshaw Layfield. Off the mm -hmm. top of my head, at least in recent WWE history, I can't think of a guy who reinvented himself so well overnight as well as John Bradshaw Layfield. And that was tough. That, that, was a, that was a tough one to do because people saw him as – the cowboy, they saw him as the a, you know, really the APA. So when we made that transition, again, what made that character work so well was it was who John Layfield truly is. John Layfield was a financial whiz. He is a financial whiz. He is extremely bright. He wakes up at five o'clock in the morning and reads the Wall Street Journal and the Times and just goes through a bunch of newspapers, goes through the stocks and studies and is truly um, a very well-educated and very smart guy. So we just took that, turned it up a notch, and took his natural, abrasive, loud Texas personality <laughs> and made it louder, more abrasive, and took the knowledge that he already had, put it on screen. It's believable because it's true. Now, we got a, a ton of fan questions here. Do you have some time to answer them? Sure, absolutely. Awesome. All right, here's the first one. Are you surprised at all by the Hollywood success of John Cena and The Rock? No, no, not at all, because both are naturals. They both have natural charisma that no matter where they are, what they're doing, they can walk into a room and command that room without saying a word. Are you and John Cena on good terms these days? Because you told the story on the John Cena episode of your podcast that, and I'm paraphrasing here, you said, hey, kid, you know, get off the gas and, and come back. And then you, you talked about how for that, however long that you were, you were still there for like eight years or whatever, he would bring back his uh, drug test and say, hey, I passed. Yeah. And no, John and I, John and I were, were on good terms when we left. I love John Cena to death. I'm so happy and proud of him. For everything that he's done, you know, that was just that little that little dig that John had for me to just let me know that you know, hey, again, don't judge a book by its cover. And he was right, and he was able to go out and quiet every critic that was out there and let him know that he deserves exactly what he's got. So I'm really happy for him and really proud of him. Now, I'm not sure if uh, you've been following the news lately, but it's being reported that, and by the time this, this airs, it's probably going to be right after the, you know, the official announcement that uh, Paige, at age 25, is going to have to be, be you know, retiring from in-ring competition, at, at least per JDB's doctors. This was originally reported by PWIinsider.com. Uh, quite a sad story. She just came back, obviously had 
a tumultuous, you know, couple of years of drug suspensions and everything outside of the ring. And it's, it, it, it is a very sad story, but you're somebody that's been behind the scenes for a long time. I'm sure you've had to see a number of careers, uh, unfortunately, uh, end prematurely in the ring. If you were still there in WWE and you had the opportunity to speak to Paige, is there any advice that you could give her going forward as far as how to make a positive contribution in the business? Yes, look at it as a brand new beginning. And whenever anybody at any age has to face the reality of their career is now over, I can no longer do what I've done my entire life. And she's been performing since she was something like 13 years old. So now she's put in a position where She's got to do something else, but she has the experience and she does have the knowledge, her family. She comes from a family of promoters. She's a beautiful young lady. She knows how to perform, not just in the ring, but outside of the ring. So she, she has a very unique look and there's something very special about her. So there's a lot she can do. She has to understand that this was probably going to happen anyway in another 10 years, probably maybe even five years because of her injuries just happened a little sooner. And you have to look at it as, okay, it's happening sooner. Now I get to do and live the rest of my life in this new area. She's already had an unbelievable and successful career as a wrestler sucks. Very young to have to go out. But at the same time, the fact that she is so young, allows her the opportunity. She's not too, you know, she's not too old that you can't teach an old dog new tricks and that she can go out and learn and really, really capitalize on this time. Absolutely. And if you also want to look at it on the bright side from a medical standpoint, I mean, it could have been a lot worse. Exactly. I mean, she could, she could have been paralyzed. And so it, it, it's an opportunity for her to live her life and, and not have to worry about could I, could the next bump be the one that puts me out for the rest of my life. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. We wish her the, the very best. And, and speaking of Paige, we got the first ever women's Royal rumble right around the corner. Do you have any thoughts on this crazy development? Because for years and years, you know, I think there's been a, a pushback from fans. You know, we want to see the women more often. You want to see them get more time. We've kind of reached past that point, And now it's getting to the point where they're getting pretty much the same opportunities as men, outside of your know, main eventing WrestleMania yet. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the Women's Royal Rumble? And who would you like to see from the past make a return? Well, first of all, I think it's great. <laughs> I think it's about time. We also have a level of performer in the WWE right now and pretty much everywhere for women's wrestling that can perform at the level that you are going to be able to watch them and go, hey, wow, that's some good stuff. They're not just out there being eye candy. They're not just being a valet or a manager and, and walking out in string bikinis. Now they're out there and they're performing and they're great performers. As far as uh, someone from the past, I hope Trish Stratus is a part of it. I think Trish was someone who came in who was greener than grass when she first came in. Trish was not good when she first came in. However, when she left the game, she was at the top of the heap. She was the best. And she grew and she got better with every single day that she was in the business. I'd like to see Trish come back. Uh, Lita, eh, uh, for her health reasons, I hope she doesn't come back. But Lita is another one. It would be nice nostalgia because Lita was 
one of those that was able to stand out above the pack and really was a great performer. And it'll be interesting to see if we see anybody else like a Ronda Rousey or anybody like that that may end up making their debut and be a part of the Rumble. Now, at the time we're recording this, it's going to be before Raw 25 and everything. Right. There's rumor and innuendo, to quote your buddy Conrad, that The Undertaker will not only be... Wait a minute, that's my quote. That's my quote, <laughs> right. rumor and innuendo. Okay, right. he's, he's the one that spreads rumor and innuendo. I'm the one that clarifies it. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying, Mr. Love. Uh, the Undertaker, not only is he set to make a return at Raw 25, but reportedly... He will be engaging in some type of angle soon with John Cena to set up their long-awaited WrestleMania match. Now, full disclosure, I love The Undertaker, one of my all-time favorite performers, but I saw his match at Roman Reigns. Uh, with all due respect to him, he, he didn't look that great physically. I don't blame him for financial reasons and for the love of the game, wanted to still perform, but in your humble opinion as somebody that, that's known him for years and years, do you think he's making the right call to have one more match? I think he could have 20 more matches. I, I think as long as he is able, even if it's with the aid of a walker, to make that entrance and get down to the ring and do a choke slam, I think that the audience will be happy to see happy to see him and blow the roof off of whatever place they are in. He's a very special attraction and a, a great performer. However, you know, where he was last year and where he is right now physically, I have never, I saw him over Thanksgiving. I've never seen him look better. Wow. I thought, wow. Uh, did, did we go back 15 years? You know, what, wh who did what to you? And I mean, he's skipping upstairs and uh, looked great, was moving great. And I had never, I hate him. Because <laughs> he's only he's only two or three years younger than I am, and the bastard looks like he's thirty five again. I mean, he really look he really did look good, and I'm um, I love him to death personally. But professionally, I think he's one of those performers that could go out until he's ninety, and the crowd will go banana, as Pat Patterson <laughs> would say. Um, but physically right now, and I don't know if it's the best idea for him to go in and try and have a match like he's he's had in the past. However, to go out and do some Undertaker things, I think it would be great. And I think he could do that for another 10, 20 years. And if he were within choking distance of me right now, he'd probably choke me out for saying that. But uh, I think, yeah, I, I think he's got a lot more in him. He really and truly does. Well, I'm sure a lot of Undertaker fans will be pleased to hear that. However, I think if there's there's one thing that WWE has missed out on, and maybe they're leaving the door open because you said he could go for another 10, 20 years if he really wanted to, uh, is a true retirement tour. I feel like they didn't really uh, – they kind of sort of did that with Ric Flair back in 2008, but I think they could have capitalized on that a little more. Uh, how much money do you think there would be for an Undertaker retirement tour, uh, like a last ride tour per se? I think it would, I, you know, it would be the right thing to do. Um, I just don't know if Undertaker would really want to do that. He, he is the type of guy. He really is a humble guy. I think that he would want to just have that one last one and say goodbye and be done. But every WrestleMania, probably for the last eight years, I've I've texted him before he goes out, and I text him afterwards of each match. And every year, he's told me that's the last one. So 
when I I saw him and I showed him the the text messages of of hey remember you said last year was the last one hey remember you said last year was the last one <laughs> so you never know and you never say never but I do believe if he did make that definitive statement and and he decided this is it this is the last one then that would be it I don't I don't ever see him coming back after that. What but he the, hasn't made he hasn't made that statement yet. True, true. He he hasn't. And one of the reasons I think the Undertaker character is, is so enduring as well is that character is able to get away with so many crazy supernatural things, aspects of his storylines that a lot of other characters can't get away with. But at times it has strayed, you know, on the little bit on the wacky side. Has there ever been a moment where Undertaker backstage uh, went up to you and said, "Hey man, this is a little too wacky even for the Undertaker." Well, like what? Uh, no, concrete no nothing. Okay, I think everybody kind of went, "What the hell on that?" <laughs> but uh, um, Vince has a way of of convincing you and and kind of putting you under a spell momentarily to make you think this is the greatest thing in the whole wide world, and then you're like, "What?" You you walk out of the room going, "Yes, this is the greatest thing in the whole wide world," and then you walk out of the room going. Concrete crypt or wait, and, and we're actually going to really, um, okay. I'll give you the concrete crypt, but other than that, <laughs> you know, come on. Paul bear had many lives. Oh man. God rest his soul. God rest. God rest his soul. Yeah, he, he, he certainly did. Then has there ever been an idea that you pitched to Vince that you thought in the back of your mind, Hot damn, this is a, a great idea. This is going to make the company so much money. It's a brilliant idea. And for whatever reason, Vince shot it down and it never saw the light of day. Is there one off the top of your head that you can think of right now that was like, oh. I can't miss? The biggest one was uh, Mr. America, which was Hulk Hogan and Vince McMahon for a loser. Uh, if Hogan or Mr. America, if Mr. America lost, then Hulk Hogan and Mr. America were gone forever from the WWF. And if Vince lost, he would get his head shaved. And that was, uh, and it was something that we actually had started and were putting into the works to have done. And we were going to do it. Uh, but it never saw the light of day. This question comes very sad. Yeah. <laughs> this question comes from Scott Anderson. Bobby Lashley has reportedly left Impact Wrestling. As somebody that's had a chance to work with Bobby Lashley in WWE and TNA, would you like to see him back working for Vince? Yes, I would. I think that Bobby Lashley would be a great addition. I think Lashley is the type of performer that you could build up to be a believable and intriguing opponent for somebody like a Brock Lesnar. <laughs> I, I'm assuming this, this is a joke question. This is from Alan Wu. Bruce, what's your favorite 205 live match? Yep, that one. The one with the guy. Uh, and, well, the one where he met the other guy. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I got to admit, I've uh, watched one 205 uh, ever. And not, out, and not out of not enjoying it, just out of I forget. Because I, I tape uh, both shows. I DVR both shows Raw and SmackDown. And then I... I inadvertently just forget about it, and that that's a shame. But the I did watch uh, I did watch it in the early days, but I haven't I haven't watched it since. 
Hey, to be fair, there's a lot of wrestling out there to keep up there with. There is. Okay, Bruce, what's your favorite Raw moment you were involved in and one that you just happened to witness? My favorite I was involved in. Um, boy, uh, that's, a, that's a tough one because there were so many great ones. I think when you, you go back, I always use the – when Steve Austin was driving the, Sam, the Zamboni into the arena and he hits that curtain coming into the arena – I was on the other side of that curtain. I was the only person on the other side of that curtain because that's where the gorilla position was. And I had to be there for cue purposes and whatnot. But Steve was blinded because Steve had come through and Steve had a, a curtain in his face and he hit that. And he had no idea that anybody was back there. So that was the craziest moment for me probably because I almost died. But um, it was that – yeah, that one kind of sticks out the most. And the, the second part, what was the second part of that question? Is there one that you just happened to, to witness that you weren't a part of, that like you know, backstage that you saw that were like, man, that that's just money right there? Um, God, there are probably a few of those. I, the when Rock finally decided to to take matters into his own hands and not necessarily follow the script, if you will. And started having fun, and when his character really started to blossom. And are you also are you referring to like the times where, and you've talked about this on your podcast, where like Triple H would kind of yes. one up him a little bit on the promos, and Rock would come backstage, you'd be like, "What the hell?" And you kind of told him, "Hey, man, you know, go be you, go do your thing." And we're live. Yeah, the rest <laughs> is history. Yes. Yeah. Okay, what will it take for the Bullet Club to fill a 10,000-seat stadium uh, arena? I don't, know, I don't know if you've been following the news, but the Young Bucks, Cody Rhodes, Kenny Omega, they are going to be having a show in September called All In. They were more or less you know, inadvertently challenged by Dave Meltzer to uh, fill 10,000 seats. They're great draws on the Independence and New Japan Pro Wrestling and in ROH, but uh, obviously it, it, that is a tall task. As somebody that's been around you know, the greatest promoters of all time, what do you think the Bullet Club needs to do to reach their goal? <laughs> the fact that we are talking about them tells you so much right there. So the fact that we're talking about them and the fact that they are a part of the conversation, I think they'll be able to do it. They're, they're the hottest act in New Japan right now, and the fact that they are able to take that success and be able to parlay that into something back in the States – uh, all young talent and guys that have enormous drive and determination, I think that they're going to be. I think they're going to be just fine. I think that they'll be able to go out and do it and make it happen. I think, and I think it's great. I hope. I hope to hell that they have a turnaway crowd. I hope to hell that they have something that brings competition to to the forefront and where WWE goes, Hey, wait a minute. You know, I want somebody to be knocking on that door to make, and it makes everybody better and it gives more talent, more opportunity. And that's what I'm looking for. Just something to strengthen the business overall. And I wish them well. I hope, I hope they do very well. And, and to be fair to them already, they think they've kind of broken barriers with the great crowds they've drawn on the independence, getting their shirts and hot sure. topic. They just got a silver plaque for over a hundred thousand subscribers on YouTube. You and Conrad Thompson aren't doing so bad yourselves. I mean, performing at Barclays, performing at the ECW Arena. You're having great success with this podcast, but is there a part of you that feels like you're kind of breaking barriers for other podcasts? 
Well, right here, uh, we got the uh, Academy of Podcasters. We won the Podcast of the Year for Sports and Recreation last year. And right behind me over here is the Sports Illustrated Best Sports Media Podcast. So, yeah, we had a pretty good year. <laughs> uh, not to brag or anything. Uh, hashtag humble brag. But let me get the trophy in the shot there. Okay. Um, so, anyway... Yeah, we're, we're looking to do a lot of new things. We are looking to break new ground, and we're 2018 is going to be the year that we're going to be doing a lot of new things and creating some different ways to experience uh, our brand of entertainment. Did you guys have an action plan going in if this thing was to be a success? Obviously, it has become that, but you didn't necessarily know that uh, going in. One of the notable things I see with your podcast that's great is the merchandising. You guys literally merchandise everything. Was that the plan from the start, or did you kind of just learn as you uh, go, went along with advertising no. and merch? No, we we went in we went in to increase our our mortgage footprint, and out of that, it's like, hey, you know, I've, I've got a couple shirts over at Pro Wrestling Tees, and that became BrucePritchard.com, and I'm sitting at home because every time that you would sell a shirt, you get an email. Started getting all these emails. I'm looking at it going, what the hell is this from? What happened? Um, and I realized, oh my God, people are listening to the show and they're buying my shirts. So that, that grew on and on and on. And the, the shirts became a, a big part of the show and things that we said on the show became shirts and so on and so forth. And then Conrad says to me, what do you do when you sell a shirt? You know, how, what happens? I said, I get the money. Uh, <laughs> give me the money. But <clears throat> He says, what if you called people and said, thank you? I said, well, that's a damn good idea. And I started calling people and it, it takes, it takes a minute, you know, to, to say thank you to someone that goes to BrucePritchard.com and buy a shirt. The least I could do is say thank you. So, uh, it's something we do and promote. And that is, you know, it's just another marketing technique that's worked out really good for us. And it, and it started out as something just. Um, just say thank you. And that's really what, for me, that's what it remains. And actually, that, that's something I know as a, as a friend of DDP's that he's been doing for a long time, too, with the with his yoga. I mean, I remember, like, mm -hmm. he called me out of the blue. He's like, hey, thanks for buying my yoga. I'm like, who's this? He's like, it's DDP. I'm like, what? And, and I feel like that goes, I feel like that <laughs> definitely goes along, goes a long way with you guys. How important is that, especially in wrestling and podcasting, to show gratitude to the people that support you the most, especially with WWE? We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the for our audience. Yeah, you wouldn't be talking to me if, if we weren't uh, getting the kind of support that we're getting. So without them, you're nothing. And it doesn't take a whole lot to say thank you and, and to show your appreciation. And I, I truly do because I really and truly am humbled by it. The fact that people leave their homes and this, this was the, 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 the true measuring stick. People leave their homes get in their car, come down to a club or a, a theater, whatever, and come in to watch us live, do what we do. That's pretty incredible. And the fact that they spend three, four, five hours of their week listening to us dissect a topic is incredible. From Conrad's research to, to my BS and my storytelling, um, that's a kick in the ass. And that that's something that I'm proud of and that I look at and go, okay, um, 
this is this this may be working. Do you feel? I know it's a giant corporation, and everything, publicly traded company, but do you feel like Vince McMahon has that same mentality when it comes to fans and being appreciative? Because there is a bit of a perception that sometimes he's just gonna, you know, do whatever the hell he wants, and and you know whether it's go with this guy where fans want that guy and whatnot. As somebody that worked alongside him for over twenty plus years, do you feel that he realizes the the kind of dedication that these fans have? Absolutely, he really does. I mean, Vince is. Vince is very, very perceptive of his audience, and he does keep track of, you know, who's watching, you know, when are they watching, why are they watching, more importantly, why have they stopped watching? Um, since I when I when I started there in 1987, the guys that were there and people around would tell me, "Oh, Vince has lost touch. He doesn't." He's out of it, man. He doesn't have a clue what the hell's going on anymore. You know, they're saying that in 2018 now as well. So for 30 years, people have thought he was out of touch, but he was so far ahead of the curve even back then that it, it didn't make sense to a lot of people. Um, but those that know, know that he he's in there, he's got his head down and he's working he does listen to the audience. A lot of times he'll interpret the audience maybe differently than everyone else does. And he's not always right. Um, and I know I've, I've butted heads with him for years and years and years, just trying to, to say, God, you're not hearing what I'm hearing. And he would just look at me and say, and you're not hearing what I'm hearing. It's like, okay. Yeah. You know, how do you argue? Now I got nothing left to argue with. You're right. We agree. We're hearing something different, but it's my company and I'm going to go this way. Okay. He pays me, you know, he signed the check. He didn't sign the check. Frank Serpy signed the check, but, uh, <laughs> he made sure I got it. Just a few more here from Dustin Sussman. Uh, what are your thoughts on MMA fighters more than ever nowadays using pro wrestling tactics to hype their fights, such as Conor McGregor? Uh, why not? It works. It's all about hype. It's all about promotion. And I think most of those guys are wrestling fans. And uh, if they're not using it, they're not learning. So why not? Good answer. Okay, this one's pretty funny. From George. Do you have it? You have so many impressions. Vince McMahon, Jim Cornette, Pat Patterson, uh, Paul Heyman, which is my personal favorite. Do you have a Conrad Thompson impression? I do not. I can't do it. I can't. I, I can't. I I try to, you know, like Vince, I can hear in my head and that's crazy. As much as Conrad and I talk and go back and forth that I have not picked up a Conrad impersonation yet. Vince, it was second nature, dusty. It was second nature. I just, I fall into it, but Conrad, I haven't, I haven't been able to fall into yet, man. We're, we're going to have to work on that. We will. I'll right. get there eventually. All right, well, I'd be, re I'd be remiss to not at least ask you for one impression, if that's okay, and since it's my personal favorite, and since I can never look at him the same way again, thanks to Bruce Pritchard, can you give us a Paul Heyman impression? Allow me another volley, if you will, sir. Brock Lesnar is the single greatest attraction in the history of the business, and I am his advocate. Please allow... No. Yeah, Heyman was... is... Um, you, you look at Paul, and and Paul is a mad scientist. 
and uh, kind of an evil genius in, in many ways. And I'm happy that Paul has finally realized and, and gotten the recognition that he truly deserved for so many years because Paul was looked at in one way with ECW and everything else. And Paul's a really bright guy and the best, the best mouthpiece in the business bar none right now. He's definitely found his groove. This this second run, speaking of never say never, you're coming back to Monday Night Raw. Paul Heyman since 2012 has been a part of the WWE fold. Did you ever think after he left so abruptly in 06 that he'd be back? Sure. I didn't think I would, but I thought <laughs> Paul would. <laughs> yeah. And I'm only back for a one-off. So, you know, you know again, never say never. And uh, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to, to be coming back for that one-off, so it's cool. Hypothetically speaking, if Vince McMahon was like, hey, pal, we'd love to have you on the Deadly Network as a, as a host or interviewer, or considering all your success with the podcast, would you be open to that? Of course. Yeah, it'd be crazy not to be open to that. I would definitely be open to something like that, and I'd love it. Uh, I'd love to be a part of them. However, I'd, I want to continue to do what I'm doing now because I'm having a blast in that what we're doing now is kind of what's brought us to the table, in my opinion, is to probably the reason that they even asked me to come back for the 25th anniversary. How long does it take you to get in brother love mode when it comes to you know the, the red face and, and the suit and everything else? A little while, uh, probably about an hour to totally transform. And then I, I have to I have to transform mentally and just get into I have to be brother love. Do you have any Royal Rumble predictions for the men's Rumble match, women's Rumble match, uh, AJ versus versus Owens and Zayn, uh, you know, the, the universal title match of Brock and, and Kane and, and Strowman? Well, uh, Brock, Brock's definitely going to walk out as, as the champion. I, I don't see any of that changing. I kind of wish that I think Roman Reigns will win the Royal Rumble. At least I hope he does. I think that he is, in spite of everything that they've done and everything that the the perceived audience looks at him, I, th I think that he is one of the hottest tickets that they have there. I think he's a hell of a talent and put in the right position could be the guy. I really and truly believe that. Um, so uh, that that's my prediction for the Royal Rumble. I hope it's Reigns. I hope Brock wins. I, I'm confident that Brock will win. For the, the women's Royal Rumble match, I don't really know. I think that that is so wide open on because you've got a lot of new young talent coming in, fresh new talent that they've just introduced in the last couple of months that could be big players in this thing. Um, I think anybody can win that, and I don't think anybody would be disappointed with whoever wins that. Uh, AJ, I'm a big fan. And I think that they need to just kind of strap that rocket to AJ and, and let him be and continue on. Is there, so. any, is there anybody you have your eye on right now, either on you know independence from whatever you've seen or New Japan or WWE that hasn't quite gotten to superstardom yet that just on the surface and the outside you think, man, this guy or girl could be money in a few years? Braun Strowman's going to be huge money in a few years. Uh, Elias is another one that is going to be huge money in a few years. Elias, that's a little bit of a surprise. Can you do you mind elaborating on that? Because a lot of people just kind of look at him as a, a poor man's hockey talk man. Wow, no, he's he's got a special charisma about him, a very quiet charisma, 
but I think that he's got the look, he's got the attitude, and, I mean, he can go when it's time to go. I look at him, and I think he's, he's got all the gifts, man. He can talk, he can sing, he can dance. I don't know if he can dance. But I, I do think that he has an aura about him that when he's on the screen, you're mesmerized, you're watching him. Wow. Well, if Elias is main eventing in a couple of years, uh, we'll definitely say that Bruce Pritchard had it first. There you go. And last question here. Uh, you've been through a lot, Bruce. You've been hired and fired and, and fired again. Uh, you did suffer, you know, I believe, two heart attacks a, a few years back. And, you know, God bless you're do, doing well right now. You were out of the wrestling business. Now you're kind of more or less back in it through the, the podcasting game. What's the best piece of advice, life advice, you give anybody watching or listening to this? Never give up and don't accept the uh, don't accept no for an answer. I mean, that's that's really the best advice I give anybody is sometimes sometimes the answer is no. And it's how you accept it and what you do with that answer. You can take it and accept it and just go on and put your head down and tuck your tail between your legs and run away. Or you can fight to change it. And. Sometimes you may go in a different direction than what you thought, which is exactly what I did. I, I, I gave up in a lot of respects, but I didn't give up on myself. And I decided I'm going in a different direction. I'm going to take everything that I've learned in 40 some odd years in the wrestling business, and I'm going to move it over here in a different direction. And then that opened up a whole brand new uh, <laughs> world for me that I didn't even know was there. And there's, there's a couple reasons why people fail in this world. Fof and fop. And it's fear of failure and fear of people. I've never been afraid of, of people. And I've always said to Vince, one of the biggest criticisms I would have of Vince was he never allowed us to fail. And sometimes I, I, I would look at it and go, I just want to know whether it would have worked or not. And he would pull the plug on things sometimes because it's not working. But I'm like going, but we got if we get around that next corner, I truly believe it will succeed. So I've never been afraid to fail, and I'm not afraid of people. So um, if you put your head down and you truly believe, and you keep working, just just keep working and and do what you need to do, then um, I believe things work out. Awesome, man. Well said. Well, before we let you go. The floor is yours to plug the upcoming Brooklyn show, Philly, and where fans can find something to wrestle with online. Well, Brooklyn is this Friday night at Barclays Center, part of a doubleheader with the Brooklyn Nets against the Miami Heat. And right after the game, something to wrestle with, Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson live. Get your tickets at boxgimmicks.com. They start at only $35, but it is going to be a hell of an event, a history-making event this Friday in Brooklyn. Then a week later... Man, we're going to be in Philadelphia at the old ECW Arena. That's part of a doubleheader with Jake the Snake Roberts. And tickets for that event are at pronounspal.com. That takes place Saturday, January the 27th, and that's going to be absolutely insane. Uh, follow us. The show is at Pritchard Show. Conrad Thompson's at Hey Hey Conrad. This is Twitter, of course. I'm at Bruce Pritchard. Uh, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Instagram is at Pritchard show. Facebook is it's, uh, something to wrestle and 
go on over to brucepritchard.com. Don't put a T in my name. Put one on your back. Anything else I got left to promote? Man, I, I think that's it. And if you want to find the podcast, <laughs> it's on all major platforms. Google Play, I yeah. personally listen to it on, or on Spotify. Just go to some, go to somethingtowrestle.com, and it's right there for you. Great. Bruce, thanks so much for your time, man. It was a, was a pleasure talking to you. I wish you the very best, and uh, have some fun in Brooklyn and Philly. Hey, man, thanks for having me anytime. Appreciate it. Thank you.